everybody, my name is Kate Shearsmith, I'm Director at the Recruitment and Employment Confederation and I'm delighted to be bringing you our latest podcast. This one is going to tackle the important topic around engagement, well-being and resilience in the workplace. This is something that we know really matters to recruiters out there. It's been coming up the agenda for a number of businesses for some time, but we also know that there's a bit of scepticism about why this matters at all. Um, and, and what this really means in practice for businesses. So this podcast is aimed at those business leaders working in recruitment to give you some really practical tools, um, some expert hints and tips about how to tackle this agenda and what to do going forward and to think about some of your future planning. I'm delighted that we were joined by two experts in this area who are um, associates with the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. Matt Hamnett is uh, the founder of MH&A and has been working with the REC as a business partner. Matt, do you want to give us a bit of an introduction to your background and your career today? Sure. So I do a lot of work in strategy, transformation and commercial. I spent a number of years as a senior civil servant in what is now the Department for Business and then in the strategy practice at PwC and the major deals team at Capita. I was then a chief exec in the wider public sector before a couple of years ago founding MHA. Brilliant. So fairly stressful environments by the sound of it. Is that something that's informed your approach to this agenda around well-being and resilience in particular? Yeah, I think I'm very conscious that delivering great performance is hard, it's relentless, and I think you know the recruitment sector is a really good example, isn't it, where you've got some very clear measures of performance, you've got some very clear, very sharp ways of managing and measuring performance day in, day out. And and businesses are constantly thinking, how can I how can I sustain performance, how can I improve performance, how can I find my next edge? Whilst at the same time perhaps looking at some of their best people thinking, I'm worried about them. And I think that that tension is one that I'm, I'm very interested in and one that I and with Caroline have done quite a lot of work on in recent times. Brilliant, okay. So you mentioned Caroline, so Caroline's our other expert that's joining us today. Caroline Ray is the founder and coach of Caroline Ray Coaching and co-founder of Vivid Stay. You've got a really impressive list of clients here um, from Legal and General, Bain Consulting, Cabinet Office. Caroline, what's your background? Uh, so my background is starting out, I started out in marketing, mm-hmm. so behaviour change marketing in particular, tackling lots of the big public health issues, including mental health and well-being in Scotland, which was a challenge itself, uh, 15 years or so ago. <laughs> um, so trying to get people to be more positive. Okay. Um, and since then have sort of had quite a varied career, sort of moving into brand partnerships and then policy partnerships, working at number 10. Um, and then latterly, and sort of involved in the tech agenda, so helping startups to start and scale their businesses uh, before becoming a coach full time. So I'm an executive performance coach. I, the, what brought me to coaching was my own experience of burnout um, and also as a senior leader um, in various roles that I had was really understanding you know, the tension that Mark, uh, Matt just talked about, which was that between needing to perform but needing to think about short-term impact, long-term impacts and actually how you evolve your business um, and keep growth kind of front of mind as well but doing that without burning out all of your people in the process. Um, I suppose it's interesting times for us all 
Um, one of the things that we're very aware of in the recruitment industry is that we had a really significant knock from the Great Recession 2008-9, immediate impact. Um, but one of the things that definitely happened is the pressure didn't go away. If anything, it got more intensive. Do you think there's anything, just to get us going, that we should be thinking about in terms of where we are now? So we've got a series of unknowns, whether you think about Brexit or you think about what's happening with the coronavirus and the impact. For now, it all feels very much business as usual. But these are going to have impacts on businesses and particularly recruitment leaders as they're trying to prepare for some of these scenarios and is there an, is that does that make this agenda more important do you think or do you think it's something that we should just be thinking about generally i think i think it makes it more important and i think it's about almost leaders kind of resisting the reflex so where where you sense the pressure mounting you know we've seen kind of stock market performance in recent days and things like that where you where you see the pressure building the the temptation, the reflex, is to drive harder, to focus more sharply on the performance measure. Um, my experience is that that might work, and if it does work, it'll work for a little while. But ultimately, you're you're driving yourself into a bad place because you're you're making more acute the tension between the business and its people. And actually, our our approach, our advice, is to do the opposite of that. To to, to make some different assumptions about your workforce and their, their attitudes, their motivations, and to have a different conversation with them. Mm. How do you stop this being from feeling like a, a wishy-washy agenda? You know, it's all about people-pleasing. Recruitment, don't get me wrong, it's a people business, and it's about how do you find the right people for the right jobs at the right time. But it's, uh, as you were saying earlier, Matt, it's, it's, a, it's a stressful environment where there's... Um, Performance is key, KPIs are all important. How do you make sure that this doesn't just fall into the HR bucket of things that are nice to do when you've got a bit more time? Mm. I mean, I think for me, and I think you know, Matt's right, it's really about not focusing on the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously there is measures that you need to deliver, but the reality is that we don't live in the world now where growing a company that is focused mostly on efficiency is the route to success. The companies will be successful when they can respond to the rapidly changing environment, to the fact that um, we don't necessarily know what's coming, never mind when it's coming. Um, And I think building resilience as a strategic capability is the way to make sure that not only can your organisation stay competitive by having a team and a leadership and a a set of um, people who can respond, stay flexible, uh, deal with the challenges that are coming and stay creative in how they think about those challenges. I think when you're focused on just delivering short-term performance and you know, driving that as the primary measure, what, where you end up taking people is to a place where they are in a place of just flatlining their way through the day. And what that means is that there isn't the ability for people to think creatively, there isn't the ability for people to respond, take a step back, have a think about well, actually, this isn't working for us anymore, so how do we change? What do we need to do slightly differently? And also be able to do that in a space that, in a climate that allows you to do that creative thinking. It's not to say that we should all just be sitting around thinking creatively by any stretch of the imagination, but when you look at the hard evidence, the evidence shows that if you're not able to respond, you're not able to be creative, you're not able to be flexible, then you will fail as business. Mm. I think that's 
really important, but there is a fundamental challenge there of how a recruitment business is operating. So I mentioned KPIs. Being first and fast is absolutely essential. We are in a candidate-led market, um, essentially, because you have a situation where there simply are not enough um, qualified, experienced expertise around to fill the jobs that are already there. Um, it's competitive, it's really tough. It means that you need to be fully functioning and trying to carve out that space for thinking. How, how, does, how do you do that I in a recruitment th business? I think the, there's a really important point here, which is thinking differently about engagement, thinking differently about your relationship with your people. It isn't about compromising on the performance of the business. It's actually about the opposite of that. It's about unlocking a set of conversations that boost the performance of the business and boost um, staff engagement, staff well-being. So there's a there's a clear win-win there, I, I think. Uh, and, and I think that the, the roots of that are in are in the how rather than the what. So I think, as Caroline was saying, where where you're hammering the number, the response is to keep doing the same stuff to get to the same number or a 1% better number or, or whatever it might be. And, and what you get there is you get, you get disaffection, you get, you get poor well-being amongst the workforce, you get staff turnover. What you don't get is a conversation about how you could do things differently and better. And in every job I've had, whether I'm running you know, trading businesses in Capita or sitting across kind of supply chains in government, if you want to know how to do something better, you need to talk to the people who are doing it day in, day out, on the front line, as well as, or even maybe instead of, some of the senior managers, because that's where the that's where people are seeing things that aren't working. And in a in an environment where you have a pretty sort of transactional view of the employment relationship, that conversation doesn't happen because you've crowded it out with what is almost a confrontation around performance. And, and it just it just doesn't have to be that way. And that's not to say that there won't be a few sort of tense moments. It's not to say that you can't call out poor performance or, or do something about it. But it's about creating an environment in the organisation where people are empowered, liberated to, to be part of the conversation, which is about reaching a, a destination that everybody's kind of galvanised towards. Mm -hmm. And for me, the starting point there is the... So what's this business for? Hmm. So being very clear on your mission statement, your vision, that, that side of it, how does engagement then feature? Because sometimes that does feel like that's, that's, the, that's the wherewithal, that's the, the job of the senior team, the, the exec. That's what they're for. Day-to-day -day engagement, where does that sit? Yeah, in, so I, in think, mission I, th I think that's where it begins to go wrong, actually. So if... If the chair and the chief exec return from dinner with a 400-word mission statement that nobody understands, that's the beginning of things going wrong. If, if the mission statement is a byproduct of a conversation in an organisation about why we all get out of bed to do this, it doesn't really matter what the words are. What matters is that when people are in meetings together, when they're hitting the phones to do the job, they're, they're clear about why that's important and how they should go about it. So for me, and again, this, this can sound wishy-washy, but it's the opposite. 
that the mission and values piece together are about the why does this business matter? Why why should I care beyond my salary about how well this business does today? And how should I go to go about doing things in this business? And I think what, what that creates is a is a movement, it's a momentum in the organization. But I think really importantly it's a, it's a it's a deeper understanding amongst staff of of what you're really trying to do, which means that in 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 the killer moment, they can follow the mission and the values, not the rules, which is how you deliver the right outcome. And, and that's a bit of a leap of faith for a business, but what it requires is that you engage staff at all levels in a genuine, open, you know, simple, authentic conversation about why does this business matter, and then you never stop doing that. And it makes the job of leaders to facilitate and help people at all levels to to kind of compute how does that kind of ethereal strategy piece translate into my job today, which makes it a coaching job, not a hammering the number job. But what you get from that, and I've seen this in several jobs now, what you get is, is teams that start to sort of solve problems, generate ideas that are consistent with the mission because they really understand it and they buy it. And in a sector that's about people's lives, that's not a hard conversation to start. You know, I've worked with clients where I, I go in and think, okay, I think your business is pretty boring, so I'm not really sure how we're going to get this kind of exciting, galvanizing mission conversation going. Yeah. I just don't see that in recruitment. Exciting industry. And the thing is, we do know that people working in it do absolutely love it. They get a proper... I still get enough people telling me about the buzz they get every time, no matter what level they are, when they've placed somebody in this. It's a really successful placement, and it's just brilliant. Um, and you said something that's quite dear to me is about... Um, if I paraphrase this, outcomes, not outputs, yeah. and, that, and that focus really matters. Okay, so the theory matters. What about in practice? Where does this work? Have we got any examples of where this has been seen to, to really make a difference? Yeah, I mean, I think an example that, um, you know, is an is a experience of mine that I had in a, a recent role is around bringing, you know, the fact that working with the... Um, team to bring together two organizations that had very distinct remits uh, very distinct remits that were very that the people within those teams were very passionate about the people within those organizations were extremely passionate about and they didn't want to be part of a joint organization and the way that we tackled that was to do exactly as Matt said it was to identify what what was the bigger picture what was the bigger mission and not to get rid of, and, and to really understand what the motivations of those individuals were and the team were and what was important to them. And then we co-created the values with them. We actually spent some time co-creating the values with them and then working with them to understand that. And again, I see this time and again with organisations where they create values and they stick them on the wall. And then they're just words on the wall. But we were really clear about how you walk out those values. So. They were in performance reviews, they were uh, used in idea generation sessions, they were, uh, even in away days, we used them to measure our success. We didn't measure our success based on did we create the roller coaster contraption that we were trying to build with the facilitator. We measured our success on how well the way we approached the work, the how we did the work, matched the values. And I think the key point that Matt kind of brought out for me personally was that having the 
the mission, having the values, and having your engaged team. So an engaged team, engaged individuals will perform better. The science shows that time and time again. But the key bit for me is about the flexibility around the outcome. So the ability to not follow the rules necessarily. Think about how you, know, you might do things differently. And I think having the clarity around the values and the mission allows for flexibility on the ground. And I think that's the bit that's really impactful. What it also does is that it creates a space that feels safe because their teams can be really clear on the boundaries. They can be really clear on the expectations. And one of the questions that I get quite a lot is, well, if I talk to people about well-being and if I talk to people about resilience, then, you know, when I really need stuff done and when I need them to hit the numbers, what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. Are they just going to pitch back and say, well, you know, I'm not really feeling like it today. Mm -hmm. And actually, the bottom line is that that's not what resilience is about. That's not what building resilience is about. That's not what well-being is about. It can be if you think putting a bunch of yoga classes on that no one goes to because there's no time for anyone to go to. <laughs> is but the real key as a leader is that you are clear on the expectations you know it's not your job to keep people well like you can't keep people well but it is your job to create a space where they can you can have human conversations it is your job to create a space where they can bring the intel from the front line and share it in a way that feels meaningful and impactful it is your job to role model and be aware of your own resilience level, your own stress, stresses and what's triggering them and how that impacts other people. And there's lots of different ways you can do that, but core to all of that, in my view, you have to start with that mission and, and values piece because that creates the foundation, it creates the container for people then to be able to, you know, have bad days, have good days, have ideas, have not have ideas, hit those targets, like think about things differently. But if you don't have that container and you're not leading that way, then that can be really challenging. Is there any sort of evidence that says this has a good commercial impact, that, this, that, they, that you can assign it? Because I understand the, the evidence from a, from a personal perspective, from building the right culture in a business, but does it, does it get to the point where it impacts the numbers? Yeah, I think it does. One of the first things we did after founding MHA was to write a book on transformation in uh, the public sector. And one of the things you see there very clearly is that most transformations fail. About 70% of business transformations fail. And one of the biggest reasons for that is that people don't care, don't understand, are worried about what it means for them. Right. And as a senior leader, I've never not wanted to change things in my business. I've never, I've, not, I've never not been thinking, the market's changing, the regulation's changing, we need to do some stuff. Well, you, you just have to create an environment in which change is embraced and in which people are helping you shape the change. And you know, as Carol said, look, if you need to put your values on the back of the toilet door, just don't bother. Because you've already done it wrong. Mm. If, 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 if people don't know what they are through conversation, through the fact that every conversation you have is anchored in that stuff, just don't bother. You're absolutely better off not having a mission statement and a set of values if you're not going to do it properly. And actually, I think that's where this stuff gets its kind of bad, wishy-washy rep. Mm. It's where, you know, we've got a mission statement, it's 45 lines long, we've got 12 values, nobody knows what they are. Mm. It's like the joke in the, in the, you know, the, in the sort of Christmas quiz, who can remember all the values? Like, just don't do it. Mm. If, if, if as a senior leader in the business, you're, you're using the mission, the strategy, the values, 
issues in every conversation. So one of the things I used to do in my last chief exec job was say, okay, what does what does our what does our mission, what do our values mean for this piece of work we're doing today on our shared parental leave policy? And at the, at the beginning of that sort of type of conversation, people say, well, sort of nothing, Matt. It's a shared parental leave policy. So well, no, if if we're not reflecting these top-line views of what the organisation's about in the detail of everything, then, then we're not doing it. And I think that's where, the, that's where I think you see the evidence of this of getting really, really powerful, actually, is when you're using them as a, a conversational tool, as a leadership tool, to translate the top-line into day-in-day-out practical activity. And my experience, my hypothesis, is that most organisations never find a way to get their strategy that deep into the way the organisation works every day. Mm. And, and I think the way you do that, I've done this a couple of times in my career now, is it's the conversation. And it, it's a conversation that, as we talked about earlier on, presumes some different things about your staff. It presumes that they're motivated by more than just the salary. It presumes that they could go and get a job somewhere else if they wanted to, and therefore you've got to you've got to give them more than a salary to get them out of bed in the morning and to keep them. Mm-hmm. And and the thing that you give them is is something inspirational to do. Yeah, you keep coming back to this sense of having a, a shared purpose, and that really matters. And I take the point entirely about the values. What what tends to happen in in lots of experience, and certainly in my experience as well, is that you tend to end up having a conversation that is at PDR appraisal time, which is like, right, demonstrate now exactly what you've done. And so it might only happen once or twice a year. And that's when people start to pay attention to these things again. How do you keep it so it's constantly there? Because without it feeling like it's over the top. Yeah, I think think for me it's... uh... It's a flip in leadership from direction to facilitation. Right. And that's really hard because mm-hmm. the number that you're tempted to sort of hammer on the whiteboard is a number that somewhere you're probably getting hammered for mm-hmm. as well. But flipping the conversation to be, okay, what do we think about this? Let's talk about what, what's missing, not what, you know, what's, what's not working, what we could do. That, that sort of facilitative form of servant leadership is really, really hard but it's how leaders make sure that the, the open conversation, the creative conversation is happening. And, you know, and in doing that kind of facilitative piece, you can say, okay, but, but that might cost us the number this month and we can't quite afford that, so let's... You know, you, none of this is about compromising on the number. Mm-hmm. It's about opening up a conversation about how you get there that otherwise you just don't have. Yeah, it's absolutely in the conversation, I think. You, you need to recognise that as a, as a leader you don't have all the answers. Um, you also need to recognise as a leader that it's your job to help people in your team understand the bigger context that they're operating in. And some of that is, you know, it's not about sharing all the big scary things because part of the reality of the world that we work in is there's a lot of uncertainty. People don't like uncertainty. Like, we're going to choose certainty every single time. Your job as a leader is not to create that cer- like certainty because you can't. But the communication about and having the conversation about what's what's going on and what can we do differently and what's your idea about how we solve this problem doesn't take away from getting to the number. It just means you might come up with a really quick way of getting to the number that you hadn't otherwise thought of. Um, so absolutely, it's about human conversation. 
And again, this isn't about wishy-washiness, it's just about being human and just recognising that, you know, you need to, the power of many brains is more powerful than one. Yeah, and I think, yeah, the way I've sort of characterised this is, we've all, haven't we, been in the pub, after work, talking about all the things that are wrong with work. Totally. And if we think about it, we've probably not had many of those conversations back in the office in a way that gets things resolved. And that, for me, is the sort of red flag for the missed opportunity. Because when people are sat in the pub having a bit of a moan about all the things that don't work, they're doing that partly for you know, human nature, but also because there isn't a forum. There isn't a conversation available to them in the organisation. Well, as a chief exec, that petrifies me because it's insight about what's working and not working in my organisation that I want. And, you know, I remember in my last chief exec job, there was a, there was a middle management tendency to sort of keep things away from me that felt like they were sort of fussy or, or they, you know, you know, you know Matt doesn't need to worry about that. And I, I wanted all that mm. because I want, I want to know everything. I want to know all the little things that we could fix. Because you're not going to fix them all. Some of them, you know, people are going to be in the pub moaning about things that actually you're, you know, you're not minded to do anything about because you think... You think that's business, but, but I want the conversation because on the things that I could make the change, I want to make the change, and on the things where I can't make the change, I have to be prepared to have the conversation. I have to be prepared to explain my position, and that's not because we're always going to agree on everything, but I want to bring that conversation from the pub into the meeting room so that I can resolve it and move the organisation through it, and I want to harness the insight where people think, well... The last place I worked, we used to do this. I don't know why we don't do that. You know, the way we use SharePoint, garbage. Da, 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 da. I want that conversation in my business because all of that is improvement potential that I'm not harnessing because it's it's not a conversation I'm having in the business. Mm. My thought process on this is that um, one, you're a control freak, which I fully appreciate because I'm one too, and it's the sense of the business leader feeling like being centered to this. How do you give people enough trust and autonomy over those areas, though? So I think it's about, it's about resisting the control tendency, actually, mm-hmm. because what you have to do is, is appreciate that however much control you exert, however many, however many levels you take the KPAs, KPIs down to, mm-hmm. you can't control the conversation that a relatively junior member of staff has with a customer every day. Yeah. And, you know, in my last organisation we had, you know, 1,000 staff, 10,000, 12,000 customers. I can't be in all of those conversations, so what I have to do is create an organisation that organically mm. does what I'd love it to do in that situation, which means you have to apply that kind of control-free mindset to, to this stuff. You have to apply it to, are we having the right conversations in the right way? Are we empowering people? Are we unlocking all of that potential? Because however much of a control-freak you are about hitting the number... You do know that you don't know everything and that you can't see everything and hear everything. So you have to apply yourself differently as a chief exec and see yourself as a person who is, you know, facilitating and shepherding a conversation in an organisation rather than trying to do everything. And actually, as a senior leader, that would be my top tip for avoiding burnout. Yeah. I think that moves us on really nicely. Um, I was going to say, so what, what do you do when you spot the signs? Or how do you spot the signs, perhaps? Of, so something has already gone wrong. People look like this is not going well for them. What do you do next? 
Well, I would say you're probably too late if that's the position right. that you're in. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think in terms of, I think that there's a couple of really important things to understand about stress and burnout. Um, the first thing is that stress triggers are very personal. So what is stressful for you will not be something that I would find stressful. What's stressful for Matt is something I may or may not find stressful. So recognising that, um, yeah, stress shows up different ways for different people. I think the other thing that's really important to understand is um, not everyone will show signs of being stressed. Mm -hmm. I certainly know in my experience, after I burned out, I met a lot of people who were in my team at the time who said, I had no idea. You looked like you were completely nailing it. Mm -hmm. But if you asked any of my friends or my husband, they were all on, you know, red alert. Um, it was only when I did two or three things that were out of character for me in quite a short space that I realised, okay, something's up and I need to do something. So I think there's a couple of things like, it's not going to look the same for everyone. Some people you won't even know because they've got a good capacity to kind of keep showing up and keep going. Um, I think when something, I think there's a couple of things as a leader that you need to think about, which is have the conversation, like make sure you're connecting with your team, even if it's just kind of passing their desk every day. It doesn't need to just be their formal one-to-ones. You know, keep connected with your people so that you really understand when, where they are. Mm -hmm. Get to know them a little bit better so that you can sort of detect when they're not quite themselves. When they're not quite themselves, have the conversation. If they don't want to talk to you though, then that's, you know, you have to respect that as well. Not everyone feels safe to be able to mm -hmm. kind of have the conversation. But I think also it's, it's thinking about how you allow people the permission to kind of take a break if they need it. And by take a break, I don't necessarily mean like go to Bali to do Vipassana meditation for 10 days. Like that's not available to everyone. But I think what's really important is, you know, a walk around the block, a job doing something completely different, just some short bursts of time that allow them to take a step away. If they're already burnt out, then I think that needs additional support. So either your employee support system or their GP or, you know, there needs to be some intervention with um, HR. But again, it needs to be led by the individual and they need to feel that they have the choice uh, there. If you want to not have to sort of deal with the, the sort of difficult end, then I think the first place to start is be really aware of your own stressors. Be really self-aware about how you're behaving in the office as a leader. So get aware of what you look like under strain. Like, how do you feel? How do you behave? What are you thinking? Because what we do know from the evidence is that if, as a leader, your mood is very contagious. So if you're up and down, your team will be up and down and they'll be responding to you on top of dealing with their own pressures. So the first way to start building resilience with your team is to start with self-awareness. So think about where you are, what are your different like how are you different when you're very under pressure to as opposed to just in flow because not all stress is bad that's the other thing to recognize there is flow state the kind of optimal pressure but get really aware of where you are it's really important particularly as the impact on your team and then i think the other things to be thinking about is are you role modeling good performance behaviors and i say performance behaviors because the human system isn't designed to flatline its way through the day. I've said that already, I'm saying it again because it's important to understand that it's not a flaw, character flaw to take a break. Your brain 
actually is designed to take a break. And it's really important that you do that every couple of hours. But if you're saying to your team, yep, go take a break, have a walk around the corner, and then you're just like pounding it out at your computer, like you're not giving them the permission in real terms. You're not creating the reality where they feel like they can do that because they're taking their cue from you. So it's really important for you to be aware of your own behaviours and to kind of role model that for your yeah, team. I think um, one, of the, one of the scariest things about a chief APX job is this kind of weird local celebrity status that you, you take on where everything every everything that you sort of say and do people are watching people are watching <laughs> and and it took me uh, you know a good 12 18 months to sort of clock the that actually that was a tool mm-hmm. because because as caroline says if if people are watching and they're listening that acutely because you're the chief exec that's an incredible communication tool and it's, and it's an incredible lever in terms of the messages you want to get across the organisation. And, you know, it takes a while to sort of own that and to turn it to your advantage. But it's absolutely something that, that you can do. And you do have to model the behaviours. You know, my, my old boss in, in Capita was exceptional at having one of the biggest, most difficult jobs I've ever seen anybody have and never leaving the office after half past five because she knew that nobody else was going home until she went home. And she knew that when we were working on major deals, we might be in the office till two or three o'clock in the morning. So she was very happy for us to slope off and have a round of golf at one o'clock when we weren't in that place. And actually, it's taken me until probably the last six months of working for myself for two years to realise that, actually, if I can fit in going to the gym at lunchtime, that's okay. And if that means I respond to a few emails within like two hours rather than my usual 20-minute SLA, maybe that's good for everybody. But it, but it takes you a lot of time, I think, to, 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 again, just to get beyond this very kind of old, transactional, presenteeist view of the employment relationship into great conversations and outcomes. Yeah, there needs to be more focus on value created rather than visibility. I think that's a big piece. Um, and then I think the other thing that just kind of building on what Matt said is it's also that um, piece around really recognising the power that you have as a leader and I don't mean power in a sort of 80s um, Wall Street we not all got shoulder pads on not all got shoulder I mean maybe <laughs> but really understanding that you know people are really looking to you and, and I think the other thing is really important is being very clear about what's important so one I had a boss who consistently asked me why I didn't get involved in everything and every time I said because I don't want to get involved in everything I have if you want if you want me to perform at my best and put all of my energy into achieving this big fat sales target I'm not going to get involved in conversations about the layout of the office I'm not going to get involved in conversations about things that I don't think are a priority now sometimes you have to bend obviously to things that your boss thinks important but also you have to have that tough conversation and you have to be clear about your own boundaries with your boss. Because if you can't do that with your boss, how can you expect people to do that with you as well? There's a, I, I see entirely what you're saying. There's a, there's a bit of a, um, a, a trade-off and a challenge for uh, senior leaders though. So, so quite often the, the, uh, the accepted wisdom is you bring your whole self to work. To be quite honest, 
I don't necessarily want to see the whole of somebody at work because there is, there's the personal you, there's the professional you, but you're saying that you've got to be very aware of the energy and the, um, the communication styles that you bring and that part of it has to be about how you as a person are coming across. How do you, how do you make that difference between it staying professional um, or do you not bother? Does it, should it be that you are just genuine, authentic, always you? And it, but what if that's not your natural uh, forte? And yeah. for some people, it really isn't. So I think there's a I think there's a choice for senior leaders about about the person they want to be in the organisation, and I think it's quite draining actually to spend you know eight, ten, twelve hours a day being the person that you're not. For, for effect in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you have, to have, you, have to have, you have to have some boundaries, of course you do, but my experience is that if you are a sort of honest, normal, authentic person, and you're having kind of simple human conversations with people, A, that's far more effective from a kind of engagement, from a sort of performance perspective, you're approachable, people can ask you the question that maybe they wouldn't, they can bring that conversation from the pub into the workplace and raise things with you and all of that. But personally, I just found it easier to not have to, to not have to flick a switch on the way through the door and think, okay, I now have to talk I now have to talk in management and I have to pretend that all I do when I go home is hibernate my brain in a box for when I get back to flip the switch again. Because people know it's not real. Yeah, you know? people can tell. And also, you're right, it's exhausting. It's interesting because I think, um, well, I was on an executive team where I was recognised as the approachable exec. And this was kind of fed back in lots of different ways. And initially, when I first heard about it, this, like, I'm the approachable exec, I actually, to be completely honest, I hated that idea because initially, my initial sort of... um, Fear, fear-based reaction was that if that meant I was like weak or I was soft or I wasn't as tough as the other execs or I wasn't as good as the other execs. Being a woman, I expect there was a sense of like, hold on a minute, is, is well, this that wasn't so much actually because I was the approachability. Yeah, no, yeah. actually because we were on an almost all-female exec team. At Interesting. That time. Yeah, we okay. were we were a majority exec team, yeah. so that necessarily wasn't uh, so much of a challenge for me. But there were I, my initial reaction to that was like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as the others. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm soft, I'm obviously not tough enough, that sort of stuff. And then I later realised, like, actually what that meant was it put me in a real position of um, influence. And power, yeah. Uh, and, and again, power not in a, yeah. like, 80s fashion. But, Absolutely. like, because what that meant was I was able to have get the intel from the people. Like, I was able to be plugged into the heartbeat of the organisation. I was able to sense what the anxieties were. I was able to get the information about what was happening on the front line in a way that some of my other colleagues, not all of them, found harder to do. And that was incredibly valuable for the executive team because I was able to feed some of that stuff back in broad themes. Like the organisations, like people on the ground are worried about X. People are, there's a tension around this. There's an anxiety about this announcement. And that actually made us smarter and faster and better as an executive team. So once I got over my personal little hurdle about that, you know, this sort of approachable exact thing, I actually realised that, you know, what it meant is I had an enormous amount of respect from the team. And it also made me and the team better leaders. Mm. Can you teach some of these skills around resilience? I think you can learn. And I think Caroline would agree with me that 
folk who've been through difficult experiences around sort of stress, well-being, burnout, I think come out of them far stronger because because that, I think that's often where where you learn some of the things that are perhaps destructive for you, but also unnecessary, and some of the things that that work for you, that that enable you to, to maintain your balance without again without compromising on the number. Yeah. It's about getting to the number smarter and in a more sustainable way by by learning what works for you, whether as a, a member of staff in an organisation or the organisation as a whole. Yeah, resilience, it's not a fixed resource. You don't have it or not have it. It is something that you can, it's a skill that you can develop. Matt's absolutely right. The, there's kind of three things. I, I guess resilience is the ability to lean into and overcome adversity, change. And I think particularly, you know, in the environment that we work in, the business context that we work in now, resilience also allows you to lean into opportunity. So being able to kind of grab opportunity and lean into it, even though you're not quite sure what it is. And I think that's where the competitive advantage piece comes from. Um, but there's basically sort of three things that can happen after, you know, you've had an adversity. So you can be the same as you were before. You can be set back and not recover or, yeah, not recover. Or you can take the time and to learn and adapt from the process. Um, and so using my own experience of burnout. So what I learned from that, kind of similar to what Matt was sharing, is that I'm very clear now on what my values are, how they need to show up for me and at work. Um, I know exactly when I'm moving into out of optimal stress and into strain, and I know what to do to kind of get myself back into the optimal mode. Um, and so I know these lessons from that experience. I also know that a lot of the cause of my burnout was actually internal pressure mm -hmm. that I applied to myself. And I think that's, you know, we're talking here about what can organisations do, but I also think individuals have a responsibility to be attuned to what stresses them out, be mindful of their own experience um, and get support where they can. And I don't necessarily mean, you know, sort of mental health support. What I mean is being really, you know, whether that's connecting you know, phoning a friend and connecting with them for 10 minutes just to give yourself a break. It's about having your own personal toolkit and, and knowing what works for you to allow yourself to go with the ebb and flow of a day because days are stressful, like that's just a fact. Change happens, adversity happens, like we can't live in a bubble. So it's really important to kind of create your own toolkit and that's what I learned. So other than knowing where I need, what I need an organisation to fulfil for me in terms of mission, and engagement and values. It's also really understanding my personal toolkit so that I can self-manage to the best of my ability. Mm -hmm. We've covered lots of ground. It's been really interesting and I think I think your personal um, experiences <coughs> help a lot in this agenda because one of the things that happens is that it can still feel like it's a conversation you're not supposed to have in the workplace but it does matter to all of us. So if you were to tell our recruitment business leaders what they should do perhaps tomorrow or in the next month, where, where, would, you, where would you point them? What direction would you point them in? So I think you know, a simple practical step would be when you're having that next performance conversation, just check whether you're having a conversation about whether you're hitting the number or perhaps better, how you might hit the number. 
and give that give that conversation about how some some space to breathe so that everybody in the room just starts to have an opportunity and it'll take time because if you're if they're not used to it people will sort of freak out and, and there'll be a lot of silence but let the silence be your friend for a little while and just just try and tease out that how conversation rather than focusing on the sort of whether and what piece um, and I think I think that's the sort of thread that you pulled that starts this kind of journey Caroline, you. I think my tip would be to start with yourself um, and recognise the impact and influence that you have as a leader. And so, from a resilience perspective, really understanding, you know, check in with yourself. You can set a timer if that's easier for you to remind yourself two or three times a day. Just check in. You know, where am I? Am I feeling stressed? Am I not feeling stressed? You know, do I need to take a short five-minute break? get really aware about you know how you are in different scenarios and start just raising your self-awareness a little bit because that ultimately will have the biggest impact in terms of how you can both have those conversations with your team get them motivated keep them motivated and ultimately sustain your own performance as well as your team's performance but you really have to start with yourself fantastic advice in both those areas and one final from me is so accept think about yourself and how you're what you're bringing to work as a leader um, thinking about your current stuff we're in the business of recruitment what about recruiting your own is there anything you should be looking at or looking for when you are when you're thinking about your next hire i think there's something about there being a hard and soft part to the recruitment process right mm -hmm. so you know i posted a job on saturday morning and by saturday night i've got 100 applicants well if I sift them by, do they have a master's degree, I'm down to 90 applicants. So actually, making the part of the conversation which is, are you passionate about the things my organisation does? Do you have the right mindset, the right values? Making that almost the, the leading edge of the recruitment conversation is, I think, how you build a team that, that, that has cohesion and that has that alignment of values. I think I would, I would say the same. I think it's higher for uh, motivation, values, um, you know, the, the hard skills or the expertise is kind of easy to assess. But really what you need, in my view, you need someone who can be adaptable, can be flexible, um, and wants to contribute and wants to kind of go ahead. Uh, I think the other thing also is try not to always hire in your own image as well. So embrace yeah. <laughs> different people, different uh, different ways of thinking, and really bring that in and harness that in your team as well. So know your gaps and weaknesses, I guess, is the other piece. You guys all know that as recruiters anyway. Yeah, but. and that's been a really important message for us, is that when you, um, for no other reason than um, commercial reasons is you need to not be looking for exactly the same people because they're not they're not there anymore yeah. so you need to be thinking about the diversity of the candidate yeah. pool. you need to be thinking about how you live and breathe that when you're trying to sell that as an attribute to clients so it's really really important and um, thank you that has been so interesting from my perspective thank you very much for your time what do you do if you want to find out more about this particular topic where do we direct people to so i think if if you're interested in this and perhaps even more, if you think all of this is kind of wishy-washy nonsense, I, I'd encourage you to let Caroline and I spend a couple of days in your business with you, just giving you a bit of a sense of, of what we're seeing, what we're hearing, where we think you might be on this. 
and then we could perhaps have an interesting conversation about how we could help you improve performance by having a different conversation. That's a brilliant offer. So I think that's, and I think that is when you've got the expertise and they come in and they and they just observe. I think you can learn so much from that. So thank you, thank you both very much for your time. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you. Um, and we are always interested in any thoughts and reflections that you may have on this particular podcast. So please get in touch. Um, all the usual contact details. Um, you can contact us at info at rec.uk.com. Thank you.